There it is. All right. Welcome, welcome back, everybody. It is Wednesday, which is my Friday, which is, according to Disney+, Plus, Wednesday's the new Friday. In case you missed it, check out Loki. He did that. Uh, anyway, you guys all know that I am a big Marvel nerd. Y'all all know that. You all all know that. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, we're going to have a good time today talking about intersection between autism and relationships. This will be fun. Educational. Here we go. Practicing polyamory, real-life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. All right, all right. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Before we jump in and chat with today's awesome guest, I really quickly want to remind everybody to please Follow the show, especially on Facebook and Instagram, where I'm most active. But you can find us anywhere on all social media platforms at Practicing Poly A. By the way, I just discovered TikTok today and made my first one. So uh, check me out there as well. I'll be trying to post more all over the place. Anyway, the more followers I get, we can show up higher on those search results. Super easy, free way to support the show. Another free way, the best free way to support the show is to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you download the podcast. <clears throat> excuse me, my goal is to get to 40,000 subscribers. And with your help, I know I can get there. So please, if you find value in what we're doing here, share it with your polycule, your poly friends, your chosen family, and everywhere you can on the interwebs. Lastly, and as always, I want to remind you, if you are listening to this show, you're a welcome guest. Be on the show. If you are actively polyamorous, polyam curious, or a professional serving the polyamorous community, I want to hear your story. If you are disabled, BIPOC, pan, bi, demi, gay, straight, sex worker, kingster, queer, lesbian, trans, NB, arrow, ace, whatever it is, we want to hear your story. The more stories we hear, the more world, the more the world learns about us, the more representation we have, the better we can serve our community. So go to practicingpolyamory.com and sign up today. All right, everybody, that's my spiel, the best part of the show. Here we go. Let's introduce today's guest. Our guest today is a therapist who works primarily with issues relating to sexual and relationship health, including kink, explore kink exploration, I'll get it right, polyamory and non-monogamy, intimacy and attachment. Over the years in her practice, she's often found that poly polyamory has a tendency to open a Pandora's box of childhood trauma, especially when first opening up. And people are often surprised to learn about their lingering attachment wounds as they navigate this new way of relating. Now, while our guest can always help the general population with their relationships, she specializes in working with those who are neurodiverse and their loved ones, primarily autism spectrum disorder. She's passionate about helping those at the intersection between ASD and sex and relationships, and she hosts a bi-weekly therapy group for adults with autism where they can share resources, build skills, and have an opportunity for socialization with others like them. There's so much to learn from today's awesome guest. I cannot wait to dive in. Joining us today out of Bellingham, Washington, welcome to the show, B. Lorenko. <laughs> That's an intro. Nice. <laughs> we do like to have fun here on the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Uh, B, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I'm really excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. 
Very cool. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So tell me, first of all, a little bit about yourself. You specialize in adults with autism and, uh, you know, finding them in that intersection where they're, where they're struggling with relationships. Just kind of tell me a little bit of, like just the broad overview of what that looks like. I know that's a very yeah. vague question, but <laughs> there's you a lot of room there. all day talking about this. <laughs> um, so, so what I, what I've done is, is really combined the two areas of passion for myself. I, um, have been working with the autistic community for years. I am self-diagnosed autistic. My child is autistic. Um, and it was pretty natural to bring that expertise into the work that I was doing with folks around um, sex and relationships and things like that. Uh, and finding that there's a, a huge deficit in our communities in helping folks who are kind of atypical in any way, accessing um, alternative lifestyles and relationships and information for how to make those things work for them. So it's been really fun to help folks kind of explore these unique identities that um, that can be marginalizing until you kind of find your people. And so I mm -hmm. try to help them find their people. Yeah, it definitely can be marginalizing. I think uh, I was having a conversation with somebody not too long ago about this. Um, and I mentioned, you know, that it is a spectrum, right? So it's a wide range. And you, you mentioned that you are self-diagnosed. Um, mm -hmm. So what does that look like? I mean, if I'm going to be wondering whether or not I'm on the spectrum neurodiverse. What, what are things that I'm looking for? So, so a quick, you know, mini history here. Uh, sure. Most of the things that folks can be diagnosed with in terms of mental health and even physical health have been researched on really minimal population groups. Um, a lot of them, especially mental health, were researched on white males. So we have a really good sense of what autism looks like in white males, what we call sort of a typical presentation. But what we're learning is that the presentation for FEMS or AFAB people, uh, BIPOC folks, um, people who maybe experienced childhood trauma, things like that, that their presentations look different. And what happens is these folks end up going through most of their childhood into adulthood without knowing that the thing that's going on for them is a neurological difference. So they often hmm. struggle with a lot of anxiety, depression, things like that, not, not knowing that, that kind of the things that that are going on for them might be related to having a neurological difference. Um, so that's that's kind of the first piece of that. The second piece, what are we looking for? Um, this, this other presentation, if you will, is, is what we call the masking presentation. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the femme presentation, meaning that, that for whatever reason, if you're born uh, assigned female at birth, if you're from a, another marginalized population, like a BIPOC or something like that, that, that because of the systems that you live in, you have to learn how to function in them differently. So you may mask your traits that are related to autism mm -hmm. and, and that masking actually leads to further distress. 
So what things do we notice? Well, we notice folks who are really literal. We notice folks who have um, a really strong sense of right and wrong and will often mm. lean into doing what is right, even if it doesn't serve them. Um, folks with sensory differences, and this is a big one that comes up in sex um, and relationships, right, is, is kind of perceiving the world in a different way with your sensory systems. Mm -hmm. Things like being over uh, oversensitive to sound or undersensitive to touch, things like that that can really impact relating to other people. Um, you know, social differences are a big one too. In the in the autism world, we're kind of trying to shift away from it being really deficit-based and move mm -hmm, toward mm -hmm. based So we, folks who are autistic just communicate a little bit differently. We're more direct and to the point. Uh, social niceties don't make a whole lot of sense and, and seem to kind of get in the way of clear communication. And how this shows up in relationships, of course, is that if you're with a neurotypical person and you are a neurodivergent person, your your communication systems are going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I come in a lot with helping folks kind of learn how to better communicate with with either their neurodivergent partner or their neurotypical partner, kind of depending on on which operating system they are are born with. So you're helping people to establish, I guess, like the, the rules of communication, kind of creating that bridge uh, so that they can they can understand that. One of the interesting things that you said was uh, that we're trying to move away from seeing autism, ASD as a deficiency. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I missed the, the other term that you used there. We're trying to see it as something else. As a, as a difference, a neurological difference. A difference. Um, there's actually a, a desire to shift to autism spectrum condition rather than autism spectrum disorder with oh. the understanding that the easiest way I can explain this, um, we live in an Apple world. If you imagine that everything in the world is sort of designed for Apple systems, mm -hmm. autistic people are like being androids in an Apple world. So you can do a lot of the same things with an Android that you can do with an Apple. In fact, Androids mm -hmm. are better at certain things than Apple phones right. are. For but sure. if you live in a world that's designed for Apple, it's gonna seem like you have a deficit if you're an Android. Mm -hmm. But if you get around a bunch of other Androids, there's no deficit, there's no issue because the communication is the same. They, folks who are autistic actually get each other really well. The running joke in the autism world is that there's that it's only a disability when we're with neurotypicals. If you go to Comic-Con, <laughs> neurotypicals are the ones with the disability because the autistic folks are going to be just fine because, you know, Comic-Con and nerd nerd culture is is pretty infiltrated by uh, by autistic folks. So the idea yeah, that, that it's a disability is kind of something that we're shifting away from and seeing it more as just a neurotype that mm -hmm. is different, but has its own strengths um, and difficulties. That is definitely an interesting, an interesting point. Uh, it, and I love your analogy. It's you, you're Thanks. only, there's only, there's only a, a difference if you are not an Apple person and don't tell my partner that cause she's totally an Android person. We have this uh, <laughs> conversation all the time, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I love you. Hold up. 
wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, my brother playing producer back there, he he converted. He converted. <laughs> but um but yeah, it's uh so so okay. So that's where we are in society at large when you're talking about the intersection between uh neurodivergency and and sex and relationships um that's as you said that that's one of the things that you work with mm-hmm. your clients on is kind of uh bridging that gap and helping them to create some uh communication rules i guess that, that that's what mm-hmm. i'm going to use you you might you might label it differently yeah. um are there some like standard procedures, like standard operating procedures that you kind of use across the board? Or um, what are some of the basic steps that a, a couple or thruple or, you know, yeah. foursome, morsome, all of these people can take to to create that that bridge so they can communicate better? Yeah. So one one piece here that's really important is recognizing that while being autistic doesn't always equate to a disability, that it is a minority. And so if you're in relationship with someone who's neuro, neurodivergent, the neurotypical person has privilege because, again, they're the apple existing in the mm-hmm. apple world. So they're going to have some privilege that the neuroatypical or neurodivergent person does not. And that's important to note because when we're talking about building the bridge, we need to make sure that we're not putting the onus of the building on the person who's autistic or on the person who's the minority, right? Kind of thinking Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. other ways that partners can have privilege in relationships. It's really important to make sure that that we're acknowledging neurotypical privilege when we're in in relationships with mixed neurotypes. So that's point one. And what that looks like, kind of segueing off of that, is a ton of psychoeducation. It's teaching neurotypical folks what what autistic communication is like and how to better communicate with the autistic person, really clear communication, right? We're not talking in veiled, passive, um, oh, you know what I mean. Like, no, no, we need to be really clear. We need to specifically mm-hmm. say what we mean. Um, so that's that's really the key piece, right, is super clear communication that's not veiled in social niceties and, ooh, let's make sure we don't upset feelings and things like that. Like, it's direct. It's straightforward. Mm-hmm. Give us the information. Um And then I think for the neurotypical person, really learning how to um, how to accept communication from an autistic person without kind of getting their feelings hurt. Right. Because autistic folks tend to be pretty clear, direct, maybe even Mm -hmm. a little bit blunt. It can land on neurotypical folks in in ways that maybe feel abrasive or. you know, disconcerting because we we aren't socialized to communicate that way. This really allows for for some of that to fall away and for the words that are spoken to be the things that we're communicating about and not the what did you mean and how did the tone and and things like that. We're just we're really getting into the nitty gritty of specifics in um 
in relationships that include a neurodivergent person. Does that make sense? It definitely does. Uh, as you're as you're explaining this, uh, the part that's sticking out to me is the giving clear and direct instructions and just the the, the directness in general yeah. and the the, the uh, need for like absolute clarity. Um, there is a a child in our family. I want to say he's like seven or eight years old, something like that. Uh, and his mom, you know, has to same thing, like give very, very clear instructions mm -hmm. on how to clean his room. You know, mm -hmm. you if you tell the kid to go clean the room, you know, he'll he'll go over there and maybe, you know, pick up moves the things off the floor. <laughs> moves, but but it's it, unless she's specific with what she wants each thing to do uh, to be done, you know, it's it's not all going to get done. So is that kind of the same thing? Does that trend follow into oh. adulthood? Do does a neurotypical person have to tell their neurodivergent partner step by step how to clean the kitchen, you know, if they're living together, for example. <laughs> so yes and no. We don't want to like infantilize the the neurodivergent person and assume mm -hmm. that, you know, they don't know what cleaning the kitchen means. However, if if my definition of cleaning the kitchen means that there are no dishes left in the sink, and your definition means that you've wiped the the counters and swept the floors and emptied the dishwasher, but you left a couple things soaking in the kitchen, we might have an issue there, right? Mm. So the person saying, hey, I need you to clean the kitchen, including leaving things in the sink and making sure that we don't you know, leave stuff overnight because that right. matters to me, right? So, so it doesn't mean necessarily walking through everything step by step, but it does mean including specifics if those specifics are things that matter to you. Mm -hmm. In the realm of poly, that might look like, um, you know, I maybe somebody says, I don't want you to have sex on the first date. Well, if, if we haven't been more clear about that, the person who's, who's neurodivergent might take that to mean any time after the first date is fine. Mm -hmm. And the person who said it might have a lot more that that means in terms of don't have sex on the first date. Maybe that means you can do a couple of things on the second date, but you're not comfortable with sex until there's been some kind of, I don't know, fluid conversation or something like sure. that. Right. So, so it's things like that, just, just having like those more specific or being okay with really specific answers. If mm -hmm. I say, Hey, I don't want you to have sex on the first date. And, and the response is, okay, well, how about the second date that that's not <laughs> meant to be pokey. That's meant right. to be clarifying. Got it. Yeah. Got it. it gets, yeah. I mean, it confusing. <laughs> It, it can. And I mean, those those types of conversations that you're talking about, it sounds like just kind of standard across the board, uh, you know, conversations that we typically have around sex and around, you know, yeah. household chores. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm not providing good enough examples, but I'm, I'm like trying to see where, you know, where where we might have to get more specific. I know that it's, you know, I know that a neurodivergent person is going to be different. They're going to have, you know, require uh, more clarity. I'm just trying to think of like a, a clearer example, but 
yeah. if you can come up with something. Yeah. So one thing that that I do experience quite a bit when I'm working with with mixed neurotype couples is that um, so so in a neuro neurotypical couple, say they're both neurotypical. What happens sometimes is you can talk about something once and feel like you both have landed on a, on a solution and then you don't really need to talk about that thing again. However, with neurodivergent folks, because of the need for specificity, you will find that you might have the same conversation over and over that you might, you know, the person will be like, okay, no sex on the first date, but what about a second date? We've had, you know, and, and they're getting into the specifics and it's like the, what I often hear is the neurotypical partner being like, I thought we talked about this already. And the, the, the neurodivergent partner being like, well, no, because we didn't talk about this, this specific mm. thing that I'm asking about right now. Right. And Got so it. it can get a little bit uncomfortable in, um, I, one term that I hear a lot from neurotypical folks with regard to how autistic folks need to communicate, especially around triggering things like open relationships mm -hmm. is it feels like we're beating a dead horse. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. we're, we're getting clarity because as a autistic person, we go through the world getting little blips of information and the assumption that we're able to fill in the gaps and that we're going to get it right. And a lot of discomfort associated with people being upset when we didn't get it right, when we didn't read the mind or do the social nicety just right. So when you're in a partnership with someone like that, that's part of that privilege in, in being aware that out in the world, there's a lot of not clear communication coming our way right. for, for our neurotype. So in relationship, you can really offer that by, by allowing your neurotypical partner to bring things up multiple times and not being like, mm -hmm. oh, this again, I thought we landed somewhere. Got it. Um, is that, is that a, a yes. helpful example? That absolutely does. That absolutely does. And and that gets me to thinking about um, relationship styles, right? Especially yeah. in, you know, obviously our, our polyamorous, we've got, you know, kitchen table poly, and then we've got parallel, right? So uh, if, you know, if I'm dating a neurodivergent person that, that, you know, needs this, this type of communication and I've been with that person long enough that, you know, I can communicate with them very well and I've given them very specific, you know, instructions. Now, next thing you know, we start dating somebody new or they start dating somebody new. And, you know, do you, I, I, my question I, I, that I want to get to is how do you see that those mixed uh, neuro, what, how did you call it? Mixed neuro, mixed neuro type. Mixed neurotypes, mm -hmm. mixed neurotypes. Uh, what tends to work best from from what you've seen? A kitchen table approach or a parallel approach where we just don't introduce the other partner? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and and much like neurotypical folks, um, autistic folks are are varied in their answers for this. Um, mm -hmm. You know. One thing about, for example, the kitchen table um, dynamic that can be lovely for, for neurodivergent folks is 
the um, the ability to check with others about communication, to follow yeah. up. Hey, so I had this conversation with partner A, and these are the things that were said, but I had some confusion about that. Partner C, what do you think? Were there, am I missing something here? That I think that that those types of scenarios can actually be really helpful for, for some autistic folks. Um, However, sometimes having sort of the, the cleanness of separate can also be really lovely because the maybe the rules of one type of relationship are a little bit different than the rules of another type of relationship. And it's easier to keep those things separated than having mm -hmm. everybody all together and, and needing to kind of... Um, to borrow a term from from black culture, to have to code switch, if you will, as an right. autistic person, um, that that sometimes that clean separation, they know like this is how I show up in this relationship, this is how I show up here, and we don't commingle because it's mm -hmm. harder for me to navigate multiple people at once. Um, so I, I haven't seen one model or the other that necessarily works better for neurodivergent folks. Um, although I will say that one thing that I have kind of butt up against a lot with neurodivergent, um, couples that are, are mixed neurotype couples is this don't ask, don't tell component, uh -huh. um, that, that I think there is maybe a desire from the neurotypical side to have a more, a, a more don't ask, don't tell because of the autistic person's need for information and clear information that they're like, you know, if we just do a don't ask, don't tell, then then we can just keep everything separate and everybody will be fine. It'll be great, mm. uh, which I'm sure you've you've had conversations with other folks about don't ask, don't tell and how um, how poorly it seems to work in practice. Most of <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. not necessarily a uh, style that we typically recommend. Right. But, and uh, I, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I do see it often where where there's a push kind of for that um, that style. And I my assumption, my story about that is that it has to do with with the clarifying questions that you might get from mm -hmm. an autistic person that um, that maybe they don't want to have to deal with. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean if if I was dating somebody and then, you know, just getting question after question after question, I feel like I'm getting interrogated. It, it might be easier to just say, you know what, let's just not talk about it at all. And, and that'll mm -hmm. solve the problem. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. So what, what advice would you give, you know, in that situation where somebody is is kind of leaning towards that, you know, don't ask, don't tell, um, you know, we're sitting here talking about that. Neither one of us really recommends it. Um, so do you do you tell people, hey, I really don't recommend that. I think this is what you should do. Well, it gets a little bit dicey as a therapist to to give recommendations, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. um, we we often try to guide or give information and let clients make their own decisions. Um, but I do have a I I give an analogy for this. I most of my work actually is is in analogy, sort of like the iPhone 
um, mm -hmm. Android situation. Uh, I, I talk about, um, so I, I say, imagine that your partner is building a sculpture. And when they come home from working on the sculpture, they tell you a little bit about what's going on with it. And depending on the information that they give you about what's going on with this sculpture, you're going to picture it in your head. So if I say to you, yeah, I found a great piece of marble today, you're going to picture marble as part of the thing that I'm working on. Now, if I'm if I'm operating under don't ask, don't tell, I'm just going to say I'm, work, I'm making a sculpture and you don't know mm -hmm. how tall it is. You don't know how big it is. You don't know what it's made from. You know nothing about it. But if I'm giving you information, telling you about the things that I found, the, you know, yeah, I got it over 15 feet tall today, things like that. When the time comes for me to potentially show you the sculpture, you're not going to be shocked because it's way bigger than you thought that it was. Or it's mm -hmm. made from material that you weren't planning for it to be made from. With don't ask, don't tell, it's essentially like I'm building a sculpture and you don't know what that means. It could be this big. It could be 50 feet tall. But if I'm telling you things about it, then it may not be exact, right? Because what we picture in our head is, is hardly ever exactly like what's taking place in reality. But we're not going to be shocked. We're not going to feel a ton of surprise when we do eventually see the sculpture or find out about the sculpture in, in real time. Because we have an idea, a closer approximation mm -hmm. of reality. Right. So we know if it's this big or that big. I, Exactly, exactly. So that's typically what I tell folks is, is like, you know, this is the, the don't ask, don't tell model. And the, the difficulties associated with that is shock and surprise and betrayal sometimes. Mm. And, and the do tell model allows for, for less likelihood of that to take place. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, if, uh, if we're in a don't ask, don't tell, you're never going to know how much my feelings are changing or evolving or developing or whatever for this other person, uh, you know, that, that whole entire time. And that's the 50 foot statue that all of a sudden shows up wow. at your front door and you're like, where the heck did this thing come from? So, and the partner is like, but I told you I was building fine by me. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. And you were saying the partner is like, how? The partner is like, but I told you I was building a statue. Why are you mad? Like, I've been honest with you. It's not like I built a statue in, in secret. I didn't hide the statue from you. And the other person is like, mm -hmm. but, 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 because it feels like a surprise. It's not mm -hmm. what they were expecting. You didn't. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't tell me it was 50 feet tall. Yeah, I yes. hear you. I hear you. Exactly. Well, um, B, this has been super educational. I feel like I, I am a, a little bit more prepared if I ever uh, get into a relationship with someone who uh, is neurodivergent. Uh, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that I missed? Is there anything that you wish that I had asked or uh, just maybe some thoughts that you might want to leave on the subject for the audience? Yeah, one thing that I do want to say, um, we kind of focused on, on you know, the, the communication piece and how that can be a little bit challenging when you're in relationship with a neurodiverse person. But autistic people are really great to be in relationships with. 
um, we're, we're really detail oriented and we see things that other people don't see. So if you're like out shopping and you go, oh, that thing's really cool. Autistic people are going to buy it for you for your next birthday present. Like we're the, we're nice. the ones that notice the little things and the little nuances. And, and that's actually really lovely to be in relationship with and is, is sort of the flip side of, of needing more communication is that you also get this really rich, truthful, authentic um, relationship with folks who, quite frankly, aren't very good at lying and being anything other than who they really are. So that's that's the sort of the plus side. You might have to do a little more hard communication, but the payoffs are really lovely as well. Nice. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right, B, the last thing I want to ask you is if somebody wants to work with you, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, join their groups with you, whatever it is, uh, how can people get in touch with you? They should go to my website. It's got my email and phone number information. Um, reach out. I would say, honestly, email is probably the quickest and fastest way. We are um, still in pandemic times. There's a lot of mental health need in the world. So I am a bit full, but I'm happy to um, offer what I can, put folks on wait lists, things like that. Maybe get referrals to other sources. Um, so yeah, looking, uh, checking my website is a great place to start. Perfect. Now, what's that website for our listening audience? It's blarencotherapy.com. Perfect. All right, B, again, today has been so much fun. Um, I definitely feel like I've learned a lot. Hopefully, our audience did as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, for hanging out with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you, as always, to our live audience as well. As a reminder, when you're live, you get no commercial interruptions, but the same cannot be said for those podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live right here, Monday through Wednesday, 2.30 Pacific time, or sign up for Patreon where you get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. That's patreon.com slash practicingpolya. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and wherever it is that you download your podcast if you haven't already. And please leave us a review. We'll really appreciate it. Thank you all. And thank you again, B, for uh, producer back there at Business Bros Pod and everybody else. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicingpolya.